1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we're pleased to have with us Professor John Curatola. Uh, professor Curatola is Professor of Military History at the University of Virginia. And today we are discussing his newest book, Autumn of Our Discontent, The Fall of 1949 and the Crisis of American National Security, published by the Naval Institute Press. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
0: The thesis is the fact that the narrative for NSC 68 um, is wrong. Uh, for most of uh, contemporary history, we look at the genesis of NSC-68 as the Soviet discovery or uh, realization of atomic weapons and the establishment of the People's Republic of China on August 1st, 1949. These two events occur within basically 30 days of each other. But what most people don't realize is that there is a deeper narrative that is occurring during this time you have a very public fight between the air force and the navy over the role of strategic bombing uh the efficacy of american military strategy but more importantly what's occurring during this fall period is a renewed debate over atomic technology specifically thermonuclear weapons this is what spurs The review of American national security policy uh, is this idea of building thermonuclear weapons based upon fusion as opposed to fission. So that part of the narrative is overlooked in contemporary histories.
1: Why did James Forrestal have such a difficult time as Secretary of Defense? And overall, how would you characterize his tenure in that position? Yeah.
0: James Forrestal is a, a, a troubled man. He's kind of a tragic figure. Um, he's uh, you know, Secretary uh, of the Navy during the war, and then he becomes the first Secretary of Defense in this new um, unified, uh, what becomes the Department of Defense, they call it the National Military Establishment in 1947. And the United States Navy is not interested in unification, and this idea of putting The Department of War and the Department of the Navy under one hat is fraught with all kinds of administrative hurdles, and James Forrestal is is straddled with uh, trying to make this new organization work, especially uh, when the new Department of the Air Force, which gets established in 1947, uh, is at war theoretically speaking, uh, with the Navy over roles and missions. And so Forrestall's trying to cobble this new organization together. And he's a man that um uh, has some some emotional demons. Um he's a workaholic and he kinda loses himself here by the uh winter of uh, nineteen forty eight and of course in the spring of nineteen forty nine he uh, Uh, is uh, removed as uh, Secretary of Defense and hospitalized for mental health and eventually jumps off uh, uh, the Bethesda Naval Hospital, killing himself. So he's a tragic figure uh, here in America's unification history uh, in the late 1940s.
1: What was the Harmon Report?
0: Okay, the Harmon Report uh, comes out in the spring of 1949 and because there's this debate between the army or the u.s air force excuse me uh, and the navy over the efficacy of strategic bombing specifically atomic bombing at this time because we don't have thermonuclear weapons yet um there's a study that's conducted uh and the head of it is a gentleman is an air force general by the name of hubert Harmon, and in his uh three-month study of the existing atomic war plans, his result or his conclusion is that this atomic bombing offensive that the Americans have is not going to really win any war. Um, Will it cause widespread damage uh, of Soviet infrastructure? Yes, it will. But will it actually win a war? And his answer is basically no. Uh, And to uh, quote the report, it it, it says – all we will do is prove to the Russians that we are the barbarians that they think we are. Uh, and so the Harmon Report is not met uh, very well by the, the, the Air Force representatives um, because it doesn't paint uh, atomic or strategic bombing as the war winner, which many in the Air Force at this time think that it is.
1: Uh, what were the origins ...of what uh, was labeled at the time and subsequently the so-called Admiral's Revolt and what was the outcome of that um, re- so-called revolt? Okay.
0: Yeah, the uh, Admiral's Revolt or, uh, that most people know that occurs uh, in the autumn or the August specifically of 1949 has its roots... Actually, back into the 1930s, as air power becomes ascendant, as aircraft become more capable, uh, higher altitudes, range, speed, payload, there is a, a debate be- between the Army Air Corps at the time uh, and the United States Navy as to who's responsible for defending America's shores. And, of course, the Navy, this has been their traditional role for you know almost 200 years. Um, since the inception of the country, actually, whereas the Air Force now ascendant sees it as its role because it can reach out further and faster and intercept the fleet. Uh, so this is a, a doctrinal debate in the 1930s. However, after the war, this debate is renewed because the Air Force really sees itself as the war winner. If you were to ask a, an Army Air Force officer in 1946, you know, who won the war? Their answer would be, well, we did through strategic bombing. Um, and we know that now, looking back historically through the United States Strategic Bombing Survey, published in 46 and 47, that's not really the case. But it doesn't matter because the Air Force believes it. And so you have a renewed debate between the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, and Both of them are arguing for their positions, they're arguing for their piece of the budget, uh, and their roles and missions. And what happens is in the summer of 1949, there's a character in the Department of the Navy who writes – A letter that falsely accuses the Secretary of the Air Force and the head of Volte Corporation uh, of collusion, basically, to sell the Air Force to B-36 bomber that some people refer to as a $3 billion blunder. The letter is completely false. It's a complete fabrication, but there's a congressional investigation into the charges, and this starts in the summer of 1949, and it continues on into October and what this really results into is the navy pushing back against the department of defense and the new secretary of defense lewis johnson who's putting most of his emphasis on air power and the navy really feels slighted by this push for strategic bombers and intercontinental interception. Uh, And so the Navy pushes back. And there's testimony throughout the month of October that we refer to as the Revolt of the Admirals where these gentlemen push back on the Air Force claims about being a war winner and the fact that air power is now the primary source of American combat power. Uh, And so this continues on throughout the month of October 1949. And that's what the result, excuse me, that's what the revolt of the admirals is really all about is this debate over roles and missions between the Air Force and the United States Navy.
1: How did U.S. policy react to the fall of nationalist China?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting debate. There are many people who want to continue supporting the Kuomintang and and Chiang Kai-shek and his efforts there to uh, fight Mao's Red Army, but most of the State Department representatives and the people who are really in the know um, about East Asian policies and specifically China realize Mao's going to win. The way he has... Embraced peasant populations and mobilized, you know, basically a fifth of humanity uh, towards his cause. They realized early on, as early as 1945, the writing's on the wall. Mao's going to win. Uh, however, there are those staunch uh, uh, supporters of Chiang Kai shek who don't believe this, who don't think America's doing enough, that we should provide more money and more aid. And even Marshall, George C. Marshall, who goes there after his retirement from the United States Army, he goes there for a year, and he realizes that this is really a losing proposition, but there are many Republicans uh, in Congress at the time who still want to support the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek, and even Truman himself realizes that pouring any more more money into the Kuomintang, to use his quote, is pouring sand into a rat hole. And so, when America withdraws its support from the Kuomintang, it creates a great political debate within. The halls of Congress that America isn't doing enough to stop the stem of communism or the spread of communism in East Asia. But by October 1949, uh, most in the State Department within D.C., Washington, realize that this really is a losing proposition. So we need to to cut our losses while we can. And of course, by the end of the year, Chiang Kai shek is, you know, sitting on the island of Taiwan, which Uh, is still there today as a a stronghold for the nationalist Chinese. So there's a, a, a whole argument between supporting arguably a democratic, loosely democratic regime against the spread of communism. And as we see it in 1949, monolithic communism, it's not, but that's not the narrative that the United States believes.
1: Why were the American military establishments surprised by the Russian atomic bomb test of 1949?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, what happens is, of course, the Russians are sending spies uh, into the United States and they do penetrate um, the Manhattan Project uh, at various locations. And, of course, Their main spy, there's a number of them, but the one that really helps the Soviets move uh, in in terms of progress of atomic weapons is Klaus Fuchs. Uh, And Klaus Fuchs actually provides the the Soviet Union with a schematic of how the Fat Man bomb works, the implosion design that uses plutonium. Well, he provides those to the Soviets. However, uh, the Soviet Union after the Second World War is basically prostrate economically, socially, militarily. You know, uh, suffering 25 million people lost. And as a result, it really isn't in position to create a Manhattan Project. However, with what Klaus Fuchs provided uh, the uh, Soviets, and along with the published um, report that the U.S. puts out regarding. the development of atomic weapons. It puts out a public report uh, regarding how it developed it. The Russians are able to take these two documents and basically get a shortcut uh, to the development of atomic weapons. And when Stalin tasks his atomic program to develop this weapon, he tells them make an exact copy of the of the American one. Why? Because it works. We know it works. And uh, he tells Igor Kurchatov, who's basically the the Russian. Oppenheimer, I'll use that term. He says, uh, like a like a mother who doesn't know uh, what a child needs unless he cries. You tell me what you need, and I will give it to you. Um, And he he says, I want this to be on a Soviet scale, meaning big. Now the Soviet Union at this time is is compartmentalized; it's a secretive society, and many people within the Russian atomic weapons program. Don't know what they're working on. All they know is that they have to work a particular problem or create a, a, a particular piece or a widget. Um, and so nobody's talking to each other except for those who are in the hierarchy. Very few people actually know what this entire effort is about. So it's to compartmentalized even within the Soviet Union. And at this time the Americans do not have a robust intelligent network within the Soviet Union subsequent to the war. So as a result we are completely devoid of any real information on the progress of American or excuse me, of Russian progress in atomic energy. And as I said many Russians aren't even aware of this progress. And as late as July of 1949 The United States Air Force believes the Soviet Union is still three years away from an atomic weapon. And, of course, we know at the end of August, basically 60 days later, they have their first nuclear event. So that's part of the reason why... Uh, it's such a surprise, is because, one, we don't know much about it, and two, we didn't realize that the Russians had been so studious with regard to what we had published, and we didn't know about Klaus Fuchs uh, until later on in 1949.
1: How important was George Kennan's being replaced by Paul Nitza as the head of the Department of uh, State's policy planning staff? In your uh, treatment of the in the book, you seem to give it a more uh low key importance, as opposed to say people like John Lewis Gaddis or David Allen Mayers who make it a more seismic type of event
0: yeah um' cause I think what we're seeing here uh is that Kenan, I think is getting all these old and tired. He's been in in a number of high level positions. Um, Of course, with his containment ideas, he's thinking more of containment in terms of economic and social uh, policies as opposed to military ones, whereas Nietzsche sees it more, you know, in terms of of, a militaristic approach. Um, And so you see this transition occurring over the fall of 1949. It happens, you know, over the course of time. And I think by the time. Uh, Kennan decides to leave and you know go on his assignment in South America. Uh, I think he's just tired. Uh, I think he's um, he realizes that uh, with these events that are occurring in Asia uh, and the, the debates that are going on within the Beltway itself that. His ideas and concepts um, are kind of falling by the wayside and they're becoming the minority view. So as a result, he steps up or excuse me, steps aside and allows Nietzsche to take over uh, and start driving the train with regards to American foreign policy.
1: How did – I'm sorry. Why did the United States go ahead with the building of the hydrogen bomb?
0: Yeah, good. That, that's kind of at the, the crux of this whole development of NSC 68. Um, during the months of October, November, and December in 1949, an alphabet soup of governmental organizations are having a debate. The Atomic Energy Commission, the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, uh, they're all looking at should we build this weapon? And, oh, by the way, is it even feasible? Because at this time, we don't know if thermonuclear events done by man can even happen. So this is a scientific question and a moral question. In 1946, there's a a conference at Los Alamos that talks about the possibility of creating a thermonuclear event. And attending this particular conference in 1946 is no less than Klaus Fuchs. Now, as Klaus Fuchs uh, emerges as uh, a significant spy for the Soviets in the summer and fall of 1949, people begin to realize, wait a minute, if the Soviets are ahead on thermonuclear weapons, i.e. fusion, they might hold a significant military advantage over the United States when it has only fission weapons. Now, the difference between the fusion explosion and a fission explosion is magnitudes of difference. Um, a fission based weapons that we have in one thousand nine hundred and forty nine um, yield about twenty to fifty kilotons depending upon the weapon and those kinds of things. However, with the fusion based weapons you 're talking megatons worth um, of uh, destructive explosive force and so this becomes both a moral argument and a technological argument uh, during the, the fall of thousand nine hundred and forty nine and that debate that secret debate that most people people do not know about during the fall of 1949 is really driving the train with regard to national security policy 68 because when truman signs the document at the end of january 19 uh or 1950 that's what he is answering he knows about the revolt of the admirals and that problem that the u.s has right now but it's this thermonuclear question that forces him to say, we need a complete review of American national security policy. And when his advisors come to him at the end of January, the question is basically a fait accompli. They walk into the office. Truman says, can the Russians do it? And there's the crew that is there basically nod and say, yeah, yeah. And Truman says, all right, then. And he signs the document. The meeting lasts less than eight minutes. And because of that, you have a complete review of American national security policy. And from that, the U.S. defense budget goes from $13 billion in one fiscal year to almost $50 billion the next fiscal year.
1: So there's an intimate relationship between the decision to go ahead with the hydrogen bomb and NSC-68.
0: Absolutely. Those two things are inextricable. What I argue is on top of that question, the continuing narrative through the fall of 1949 with the revolt of the admirals, the questions of the efficacy of strategic bombing, all of these things are part of this larger synergy, uh, symmetry or synergy that comes together that pushes this narrative forward. And the important thing about NSC 68 is not so much thermonuclear decision, which, of course, we build. What's more important is this is a break from the American military tradition. From now on, the United States will fund a large peacetime army, or military, I should say.
1: So, in fact, you would put less stress on the changeover from Kennan to NHTSA than a lot of uh, other historians.
0: Yeah, because I think NHTSA is largely echoing Uh, the prevailing thought at the time. I think he sees the landscape through the revolt of the admirals. I think he sees the landscape of thermonuclear weapons. Um, And so as a result, with these debates going on in the fall of 1949, he sees it as his mission to move this football down the field. And, of course, he drafts NSC-68 with help from the Department of Defense uh, in the spring of 1950. And it languishes for quite a while until the North Koreans come across the border in June of 1950. And then for most of the Americans, it's kind of a fait accompli that, see – They are bent on world domination. See, we have to build a large military based
1: upon what just happened in Korea.
0: And, of course, by uh, September 1950, Truman has approved NSC-68.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: Um, The synergy of events that occur in the fall of 1949 set up the United States to break from its traditional role of keeping a small peacetime military. And now, as a result of that event in 1950, the United States remains a global military power. That is why I think this is such an important era in American history and, quite frankly, world history.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today This is Charles Catillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very much.
0: Thank you. I appreciate your time.